Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. The Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We're on the Man of God Network brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. And if you have clicked on our uh, podcast feed, you already know what the title of this episode is. The subject matter of this episode is Church Planting. We have the special privilege to talk with Dr. Tom Hawks. Uh, Dr. Hawks, thank you for joining us today. Glad to be here today, Austin and Dewey. Yes, it's our privilege to have this conversation with you about this important subject of church planting. And uh, since you are our first-time guest on the Covenant Podcast, it's our tradition that we kick off our conversations by asking our interviewee to introduce themselves. So would you do that? Uh, Introduce yourself to our listeners. Certainly. Um, I'll go back to the beginning. I grew up in a non-Christian home, actually nearby to where I am now. I'm speaking to you from Fernandina Beach, Florida. I grew up in Jacksonville. The beach is there, Neptune Atlantic Beach. I grew up in a non-Christian home and came to Christ after a sister was killed in an automobile accident when we were both uh, teenagers. I really found myself uh, wanting to answer two questions. Where are you going and why are you here? I was going to the Episcopal High School in Jacksonville, and a believing priest there encouraged me to read the Bible. It was really just reading the Bible, particularly the Gospel of John, and hearing the Lord Jesus claim to be the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one could come to the Father except through him, that led me to believe on him. And so I I came to Christ the summer before my senior year in high school and decided I would go into ministry. And uh, from there, I went to uh, Gordon College, a Christian college up in the North Shore of Boston, and followed that up with Gordon-Conwell Seminary, and then later on did degrees at the Free University of Amsterdam and the London School of Theology. Uh, I worked in parachurch ministry for about 15 years with a group called the Evangelistic Association of New England, uh, the Arrow Leadership Program with Dr. Leighton Ford in Charlotte, North Carolina, and then also the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association on a couple of their projects. I spent about uh, 35 years in the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America, started off working with their their church planting arm, actually called Mission to North America back in the 80s. But for 25 years, most of my ministry was uh, spent planting a church in uh, downtown Charlotte and uh, seeing that blessed by the Lord. And it uh, uh, grew. We planted about eight daughter churches, three of those uh, internationally. We helped about another 20 church plants get started. In that time, that same time frame, I chaired our presbytery, the regional district of uh, churches uh, for about 20 years, the church planting committee of our presbytery. Uh, currently, I'm serving as a church planting pastor, Christ Presbyterian Church here in Fernandina Beach, Florida, and also as director of church planting for the Florida Presbytery. So I cover the whole state of Florida. We have a goal to start 40 churches in the next 10 years. Um, which is modest by Southern Baptist standards, but for Presbyterians, it's a real big deal. <laughs> so we're excited about it. I've been married to uh, my wife, Anne, for 44 years. We have four sons, uh, four daughters-in-law, and seven grandchildren and counting. We, we understand we have number eight and nine on the way, so we're excited about that. Praise the Lord, Dr. Fox. Uh, it's encouraging to hear that about your family and, of course, all of the work that the Lord's doing uh, through your ministry, particularly in the realm of church planning. And um, we're always grateful in the Covenant podcast to talk about uh, missions and the advancement of God's kingdom. Uh, we believe you have much insights that you can share with our audience today. So maybe to get our conversation going in that direction, would you be willing to provide us uh, with a working definition of church planning as you understand it, and 
why church planning is so important for uh, the church to undertake in our day? Sure. Um, the short, short first answer, I would call define church planting as the starting of a new worshiping community of believers that has the three marks of the church, um, the right preaching of the word, a biblical church government discipline, and the right administration of the sacraments. And the goal of uh, planting a church is to see a church that becomes self-governing, self-sustaining, and self-reproducing. Um, so that's kind of a short definition. Um, but before I go on to why it's important, do you have any follow-ups on the definition? Uh, feel free to expand just some of those terms that you've thrown out to our listeners. Uh, I'd be intrigued for you to elaborate a little bit on that. Um, well, the three marks of the church during the Reformation, the reformers are trying to understand the difference between sort of any gathering of a group of Christians and what made a gathering into a local church. And as they looked at scripture, they noticed these three things that would stand out. Uh, the word, of course, uh, to be a biblical church, the preaching of the word, teaching of the word needs to be at the very center of it. And uh, they also noticed that um, you really didn't have a church unless you had biblical church government. There was some form of biblical practice of, uh, of um discipline and of uh, leading the church, ruling over the church, of church government, and then the administration of the sacraments uh, of um, the Lord's Supper and baptism that are, that are rightly used and rightly administered. And so if you don't have those, the reformer said, you don't actually have a church. And so we want to start churches that have those things. And then uh, one way to judge maturity is the, those three selves, a church that is self-governing, so it's not... Um, uh, reliant on other people to lead it, has its own elders, uh, self-sustaining in terms of finances. It uh, can uh, become independent. Most church plants, of course, are not. We, we have outside funding right now. And then uh, self-reproducing, so it can plant new churches. Uh, that's uh, We think that's important for um, a, a healthy church. Uh, as to the uh, why it's so important, um, <clears throat> church planting, I would offer five imperatives for church planting. The first of those is the biblical imperative. And I draw that really straight from Matthew 28, 18, the Great Commission, uh, when Jesus said, all, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Truly, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. When he said that, he didn't just give us a mission. Uh, make disciples of all nations, but he gave us the method. It's uh, it's uh, very cleverly, wisely embedded in the Great Commission. Uh, to fulfill the Great Commission, you need a local church. Uh, let me show you how that's true. When you said all authority is given to me, go and make disciples. Uh, to have authority uh, in a local in a local church in a local body, you have authority given by Christ, and it's not given to us just as individuals, but it's given to the church and particularly the, the authority to, to make disciples, to, to govern over people. Uh, sometimes I'll say the church has the authority to say no ecclesiastically and make it stick, uh, where other, other good Christian organizations don't have that. You do have uh, that biblical authority to make disciples. Secondly, you have the sacraments. He said baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So again, baptism is not uh, just a right given to anyone to go use as they please, but it's given to the church and people are baptized, generally speaking, into the context of a local church. Then, of course, he said teaching them to obey everything. And you have the, the word there. So preaching is ongoing teaching ministry of the church. So you'll recognize uh, those three aspects of the Great Commission as those three marks of the church, biblical church government, right use of the sacraments, preaching of the word 
So Christ embedded those three marks of the church right in the Great Commission. So the disciples, if they wanted to follow his lead, uh, would go out and start planting churches. And of course, that's exactly what they did. So look to the book of Acts, which is really the Bible's church planting manual. You'll see apostle after apostle, particularly Peter and Paul, going about uh, plant planting churches. Uh, Acts 14, 21, they preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to uh, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraged them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church with prayer and fasting, committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. Often people will look at the, the book of Acts and say, well, Barnabas and Paul, they were itinerant evangelists, and that's true to an extent. But their mission wasn't just to win converts, it was to form them into, into new local churches and they, so that they'd have preaching of the word, they'd have the right use of the sacraments. We see that as Paul is writing the Corinthians uh, when they're messing up the Lord's Supper, he wants them to get it right. And you see the biblical church government right here. They appointed elders for them in each church. They knew the work hadn't been done yet, hadn't been finished yet. So that, I'd say, is the biblical imperative. The, the Bible tells us we need to be planting churches to fulfill the Great Commission. Uh, secondly, uh, you have the historical imperative. And there we see that the kingdom of God has spread in church history through the planting of new churches. And you can just go down uh, century by century and see how this happens. We think of Patrick of Ireland. Um, you, you recall the story, kidnapped, uh, as a, he was in, in Brittany, kidnapped and taken to, to Ireland where he um, tended pigs for six years. He escaped, but then had a call from the Lord back to Ireland where he went uh, about 432. We think it's a little hard to date it exactly. And he stayed for 30 years. And there with, um, uh, with his evangelism and outreach and his uh, band of monks, uh, they planted something like 200 churches and baptized something like 100,000 converts in that period, all through a strategy of church planting. We come down to 596. That's when uh, Augustine of Canterbury was sent out by Gregory the Great to re-evangelize Britain with a team of about 40 monks, and uh, they spread Christianity across to England. We come down to the 1500s and the, the Huguenots uh, in France <clears throat> had the first congregation of Huguenots in about 1555 in Paris. By uh, 1562, there are about 2,150 uh, Presbyterian Reformed Huguenot congregations all across France with something like 3 million members come down a couple centuries, uh, come forward a couple centuries till uh, 1700s, and you have uh, the Hernhut community and uh, Moravia, the Moravians. Uh, um, 1727, Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zizendorf started small group ministry and, and uh, you know, a prayer watch there called Hernhut, the Lord's Watch, where they prayed 24 hours a day, seven days a week for 100 years, something like that. And there's just a fantastic missionary and church planting movement. They sent uh, missionaries out all over, all over the world, 226 Moravians entered 10 foreign countries between 1732 and 1760. And their primary strategy was uh, planting churches as they went and planted many churches and uh, across those areas, including, of course, uh, the United States. So you have the, the biblical imperative. You have the historical imperative for church planting. You also have the missions imperative. Uh, that the, the very best way to get missions done is the planting of new churches. Dr. Peter Wagner, formerly of the Fuller School of uh, World Missions, has said this, the single most effective evangelistic strategy under heaven 
is the planting of new churches. That's important to recognize. And in the year 2000, uh, Billy Graham pulled together a group of uh, church leaders, evangelists, pastors from around the world in Amsterdam 2000. There are about 10,000 gathered there, but he took about uh, 600, five or 600 of the executive leaders from different denominations and mission organizations. And over the 10 day period, he asked them to come up with a strategy uh, to evangelize the world and how they would go about it. And so they spent the week working on that. All these missions leaders and denominational leaders uh, from across the world. And the, the item number one in the world mission strategy was this, to work toward the planting of churches within every remaining people group as we seek to evangelize and, and make disciples. And so we see that, uh, that just the missions imperative, how that has that worked and uh, church after church being planted. Uh, all across the world. And then there's the, the fourth imperative, I would call the demographic imperative for church planting today. It's simply the fact that the world is growing so fast. In 1955, there's something like 3 billion people today, around 8 billion projections for uh, the next uh, seven years or so to add a half billion or more people to the world. Uh, similarly, in the United States, uh, some, something like 330 million people today, and we're expected to add something like 30 million people by uh, 2030. Uh, and, and with all those people, and, and despite the fact that we have about 400,000 churches in the U.S., uh, something like 18% of the U.S. are in any sort of church that would be uh, historically uh, orthodox in its Christian teaching. And even in cities, I was in, in Charlotte for 25, 30 years, a city like Charlotte and the Bible Belt, we had 900 churches there. There were still over a million people that were unchurched. And where we are right now in Florida, uh, North Florida, Nassau County, uh, over half the population here is unchurched. Most of our core group that's starting up is, uh, is an unchurched group. Finally, uh, I would say that there is a church life cycle imperative to plant new churches. Uh, maybe you are aware of this, but um, Lifeway uh, did, a did some research a while ago about the average lifespan of a church, and they found that most churches lasted about 70 years. And so you know, as we're planting churches uh, year by year, and some stats say we've been planting about 4,500 churches a year in the United States. Uh, some years we're closing almost that many, 3,500. During COVID, we actually closed more than we planted, but that's not a normal year. But what you see is that churches have a lifespan. They start, they live for a while, and they close. And again, Lifeway said about 70 years. Um, even where you have uh, church buildings that have existed for a long period of time, what usually you see there is a number of different congregations that occupy them. The congregation comes up, plateaus, and dies out. And so you might have over 250 or 300-year period of time, uh, five or six different congregations going through that 70-year uh, lifespan life cycle. And so with new generations coming forth all the time, we need new churches, new wineskins for new, new wine. Um, churches come and go, denominations come and go. And so we need new generation of church planters to plant a new generation of churches to reach these new generations. Um, but I think, it, you know, if we had nothing but the Bible, <laughs> we have all that we need to tell us we should be planting churches. But when you add to that the, the historical, the missions, the demographic, and the church life cycle imperatives, you see that this, this is something that we should all be concerned about, planting new churches. Every Christian, every church and every denomination should have this someplace, someplace in their to-do list to plant churches. Hmm. Yeah. Thank you for that. That was helpful. I, I appreciated your uh, thoughts there that every uh, Christian group should, should care about this uh, scriptural concept that you've 
given forth uh, in your answer. Um, given your experience uh, with church plants, we want to ask you this next question. Uh, of course, we know that if any biblical church is brought about, it's by the grace of God birthing uh, a new church. We also recognize that the Lord uses means. Uh, he uses harvesters. He uses men uh, sent to go till up ground in hard places. Um, so while recognizing that it's all of the Lord's grace that brings about any church, um, what would you say are some of the most essential means or essential ingredients to ensure that a church plant does actually come to fruition? And on the other hand, what would you say are some of the greatest pitfalls associated with planting a church? Yeah, yeah. Again, great question. Um, I'll mention sort of two broad categories on the, the keys to success or things that are important. Um, I'm working on a new book called The Reformed Church Planter, and these are taken from that book. Uh, I'll focus on the church planter and uh, things that are very important for the church planter to be about. And then the church plant itself. In the book, I have um, nine characteristics of a Reformed church planter, 10 dynamics of a Reformed, healthy Reformed church. I, I won't go through all of those, but just mention a few of each. Um, so the, the very first thing about the church planter is he needs to be a prophet, prophet, priest, and king, but a prophet who proclaims God's word boldly. We look at passages like 2 Timothy 4, 2, preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So you want a church planter who's absolutely committed to God's word. And what you see down through the generation of God's people, the generations for thousands of years, really, there's always this tension. And the question for every pastor, every preacher, every prophet is, well, am I going to stand on God's word or am I going to go with the world? And there's that tension between the word and the world. And so for a, a church plant to work well, uh, the church planter needs to be a prophet who says, no, I'm going to stand on God's word. I'm committed to his word. I don't care how much opposition that I get from the world. I don't care how much opposition I get for, even from the church. I'm going to stand on God's word and proclaim his message. So a prophet who proclaims God's word boldly. Secondly, a priest who sanctifies himself and God's people for God's worship. Second Timothy, again, this time, chapter 221. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself for what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So not only must a, an effective church planter stand on God's word, but he must become more and more like Jesus, become more holy. And so his uh, mission uh, towards personal holiness and sanctification is very important. His prayer life, interceding for God's people, talking to God, and then leading God's people into worship that is holy and commended by God. So prophet, priest. The third characteristic I'll mention out of the nine is a king who leads God's people to fill God's vision. Uh, Psalm 78, 72, speaking of King David, with upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. And so we want to see uh, men go out who will rule uh, with, with great humility, uh, who, who will build teams, who are called by God, have a vision for God, and uh, follow the Lord's leadership in leading God's people with that, with that upright heart and with those skillful hands all put together. So that's what I'd say about the church planter. Um, but before I move on to the church plant, let me just pause. Any follow-ups on that aspect of it? Uh, no, brother. I say uh, that that was good. Uh, obviously, uh, I'm thinking through like uh, some catechisms that we might share 
Westminster Shorter Catechism, Baptist Catechism, sharing those questions and uh, thinking of Jesus as our prophet, priest, and king, and how we're to emulate him as we uh, shepherd in the church uh, where he's the head. So yeah, this is really helpful to hear you uh, explain yeah. this. But yeah, can you continue to flush out your answer? Yes, yes. So that's the, the church planter. So to have a healthy church, you need a healthy church planter. Those would be the first characteristics I mentioned. But the healthy the church plan itself needs to be healthy. And so there's some things they want to be focused on, principles, dynamics of a healthy church plant. And um, not surprisingly, number one is Bible-focused in teaching. So the healthy Reformed churches are built on the Word of God, not merely human words. Uh, therefore, we're going to be teaching and preaching God's Word in everything, in everything that we do. Uh, again, such a temptation with so many different books and so many different um, tools out there for us to use. Uh, we tend to forget that the Bible is the most complete toolkit we could ever have for, for doing ministry. And so we want to be completely Bible focused. I remember when I graduated from seminary, Gordon Conwell in 1985, in my mind's eye, I had shelves and shelves of books. And of course, the very top shelf was the Bible. And over the years, uh, ensuing years, uh, one by one, I'm sort of taking those books off the shelves. And now it's kind of empty except for the Bible. And I, I recognize in a way I didn't uh, so many years ago. Uh, the, the importance of taking it all back to the Bible. You know, of course, that the, the Latin phrase of the Reformation that was used, the cry was ad fontes, back to the sources, back to the Bible. And uh, I'm absolutely convinced as we look around the world that the, the need of the moment will be churches that will go back to the Bible instead of trendy topics uh, going back to the Bible over and over again. So Bible-focused in teaching would be number one. Number two would be God-reliant in prayer. Healthy Reformed churches rely on God to establish them and make them grow. Therefore, we, we pray and pray earnestly. Christ said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. He didn't say Tom or Dooley or Austin would. He said I would. Now, we have the privilege of being used by him, but we, we look to him and recognize that uh, ultimately it's, it's up to him. He's got to do the work. And since we are dependent on him, the, the way we show our dependency, our faith in him is to pray and to ask him for everything. Um, and so we just really need to depend on him. When we were planting our church in North Carolina in Charlotte uh, years ago, we started in 94. I, I, I just had long checklists of all the things I, I needed to do. I had helped uh, edit our denomination, uh, the Presbyterian Church in America, our denominational church planting manual. And each of the five chapters had a checklist of things you need to do. And so I had all those in my mind and all these things I was trying to get accomplished. And uh, feeling very burdened and uh, praying one day, uh, the, the verse John 12, 32 came to me where Jesus says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And uh, I just remember sitting there thinking I could do that. I could lift Jesus up over Jesus up over this city. And that's not that hard. And it was just this giant pack <laughs> of to do lists fell off my back and I was freed and say, I just need to lift up Jesus here. That's what I need to do. And so, of course, we do that in dependence on him and prayer, coming to him over and over again in prayer. So word centered, um, prayer, prayer centered, and then God centered in worship. Um, so healthy churches aim their worship service at pleasing God, not entertaining people. So we want to make sure that our worship centers are God centered. Our worship services are God centered, regulated, uh, regulated by scripture. Um, uh, there was a. A while ago, it was really big to have a seeker movement. And there was a good heart behind that. It was the idea we want to uh, attract seekers, non-believers to our worship services. And we certainly want worship services that are attractive. Uh, 
But part of that movement was uh, a desire to remove everything that was strange to a non-Christian from the worship service. So reading the Bible, prayer, singing, worshiping the Lord, those are all strange. And so we'll remove those from the worship service and substitute for them pep talks and fun music and drama sketches like you get in a theater. And uh, what we saw, of course, is that was not an effective way either to reach people or to build churches. And we really need that the, the hour that we live in right now needs is churches that will focus on the theological, on the divine, on the transcendent. Uh, what people are, are dying to see. Uh, they can go down to the concert hall and probably get a better concert, but they can't get better worship. And that's really what I think uh, churches today, to be healthy churches, uh, need, to, need to emphasize. So those are, those are the few things I want to mention in terms of uh, keys to building a healthy church uh, to see and succeed, succeed. But uh, uh, I'll mention a few pitfalls. You asked about that as well. I classify these in two broad areas. First, just biblical problems. Uh, one would be uh, often churches are planted by men who are not biblically qualified, not upright in their integrity, not working for Christ, but for themselves. And, uh, and often the church will uh, grow quickly under unbiblical leadership. And then, of course, something happens and the, the man disqualifies himself for, for ministry. The, the flaws in his character are exposed by the pressures of ministry. And so that's, that's one of the things we see over and over again, um, men who are not biblically qualified. Second thing would be a bad vision for the church. Um, often guys will go out trying to start a church where they, they really are just trying to attract a crowd uh, of worshipers for themselves. <laughs> and uh, it's a bad vision. And so they, they come out to hear the leader rather than the church. Now, a third biblical problem would be a church that's not word-centered, so the inverse of the, 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 what's healthy. You see this over and over again where uh, pastors, church planters will be preaching pragmatism and opinions rather than the word of God, and the church cannot grow into a, a, healthy, uh, a healthy unit like it should. A few practical problems um, uh, that, that we see over and over again in church planting. One is the church planter tries to do it all himself. It's often the case that church planters are doers. They like to get their hands dirty. They jump in, but they fail to mobilize a team. In fact, years ago, Vineyard Christian Fellowship did a study of their failed church plants. And the number one reason they found in their failed church plant was just exactly this point. The church planter was doing everything himself, wasn't mobilizing a team to be reaching people and putting on the worship service, doing outreach, all those kinds of things. Second uh, practical problem that we see over and over again is a lack of unity. When we do send out a church planting team, often it will be disunified or the church planter, if he, as he's trying to build a team, will pull people on board without actually seeing that they're aligned on vision with what he's doing. So not really trying to follow the same vision. So that whole alignment of vision is really important. A third practical problem, and I, I, I'm sad to say we see this too often as well, is just a uh, lack of an outreach focus. So a church planner may have a pre-existing core group, 20 or 30 people, and he'll go and just pastor those 20 or 30 people, uh, but never think about reaching beyond that, never mobilizing the people to reach beyond that, not reaching beyond that himself. So an inward focus is what I would call that in terms of practical problems. So those are some keys to successful, healthy church planting and some things to avoid. Very helpful, Dr. Hawks. Um, much of what you've said is uh, very thought-provoking for me personally, and I'm sure many of our listeners here who are either currently in ministry or aspiring to ministry has much to learn in the realm of church planning from some of these topics that you are addressing. Um, I want to transition now 
to compare the task of church planting in Western context with the task of church planting in other parts of the world? Um, are there any key similarities and differences as to how somebody would approach church planting here in like the United States as opposed to uh, somewhere overseas that would be foreign to, to those who are currently in our American context? Yeah, again, great question. Um, I've had some international church planting experience, um, spent some time overseas. We've done some daughter church plants overseas, but I don't have extensive experience, I'm sure, as uh, many of your, your viewers and listeners will. But still, uh, from what I've seen, uh, the first thing I would say is that uh, because the Bible is so cross-cultural, not, not a Western document, it, it, but universal, the biblical principles, the thing that we've been talking about here, uh, really apply everywhere. And uh, what, a, what it amazes me most as I've traveled around the world is how similar people are, <laughs> uh, not how different, and how the desires of the heart and the sins that people struggle with and the things they long for are, are so similar culture to culture. Um, and, and that impresses me. Uh, but I'd say that there are challenges and benefits to, to each culture in which you in which you serve. We we helped uh, with church planting in Malaysia and downtown Kuala Lumpur, and so you know in the in the Asian culture and Malaysian culture, one of the strengths they have is the group orientation. Uh, one of the weaknesses we have here in the U.S. and the West in general is an independent orientation. And so the idea about being part of a church. Um, and, and giving yourselves fully to community is a bigger challenge here than it is in other parts of the world. Another thing that I would say I've, I've noticed uh, over the years uh, is just that how widespread the Western influence is. And so although there are different cultures with um, uh, uh, different norms, uh, still the Western influence is for better or for worse, and in many cases for worse, um, uh, the Western influence is spread all over the world. So, for example, again, in, in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, a group of us went over to teach uh, some of the churches we worked with there on how to minister effectively to homosexuals in the midst of a Muslim country. And we were surprised by um, the resistance we got from a, a homosexual affirming church. So a church that said homosexuality is not a sin. We should all embrace homosexuality as a good thing. And here in the middle of a Muslim country, we, we did not expect to see that. And the last thing I'll say um, that I've noticed in the different cultures is there are very different rates of growth <laughs> from country to country. Uh, what uh, I've been traveling for years to the Middle East and doing ministry there, and uh, you, you, you could have uh, in, in Asia and parts of Africa, very rapid church growth and church planting growth. And in the Middle East, all of things are, the Holy Spirit seems to be warming people's hearts and conversions are happening and churches are getting planted. Uh, it, it just can be much slower given the context. And it's hard to compare uh, a church planter in one community, in one city, one state, one country to someone else in another country. It just seems like God has uh, the spirits blowing where he will at different speeds and different and different ways. And uh, it happens very differently depending on what the Lord is doing. So I think no matter what culture we're in, is, um, the importance is to to be patient and to remain obedient to what the Lord has given us to do. Hmm. Hmm. As you were giving your last answer, I was thinking about William Carey being overseas for a number of years before his seeing the Lord convert Krishna Paul. And yeah, uh, the spirit blows where he will, where he yeah. wills and yes. uh, saves in his timing. And yeah, there's definitely <clears throat> uh, differences of rate in which that might happen. But uh, we want to transition on to uh a new part of our conversation 
And I want to get your thoughts about um, if slash when the time is appropriate for a church to consider uh, breaking a part of their membership or sending a part of their membership to uh, start plant a church because they're beginning to get too large themselves. We've seen uh, the approaches of some churches in America that uh, stack up their membership until they eventually become a mega church that's so large that they can't effectively <laughs> shepherd every person within the congregation. So what are your thoughts about um, balancing these things, uh, trying to send out a group of people once you reach a certain size to start new churches? What are your thoughts? Yes, um, I'll talk about the, the dynamics of churches growing larger but the first question I'll ask related to what you're asking is, when should a church plant a church? How large you have to be? And my answer would that be would be immediately. As soon as you start planting a church, start planning your next church plant. And so we uh, haven't started first worship service, and we're looking for a church planner to come on staff to plant a daughter church. We picked out a community uh, 10 miles away um, that's a booming area. And so if any of your listeners want to plant a church in Florida, give me a call. We're trying to hire a church planner to come on staff right now, be our, our first pastoral staff after, after myself. Uh, when we were in Charlotte, uh, we were about a year into our church plant there. We had about 30 or 40 people and I met another church planter from a different denomination. And, um, he was said he was having trouble getting a core group together. So I went to our leadership and suggested to them that we might have him come try to recruit people from our church plant. I wasn't sure how it was going to go since we didn't have that many people, but our leaders all instantly agreed. And so I called up the, the church planter and invited him to come speak to our congregation. So we would endorse him and, and encourage people to go. And he, he broke down crying on the other end of the phone. He couldn't speak for about 30 seconds. I said, I'm sorry. I thought that would be encouraging. He goes, I cannot get to my own, my own denomination churches won't let me in. There's a church from another denomination inviting me in to plant a church. It's, uh, I'm speechless. And um, uh, a few people went out that day, one couple and two singles. Uh, about uh, So this would be uh, 1995, about three or four years ago, uh, I was at a conference and a fellow walked up to me and he said, do you remember me? I said, I'm sorry, no, I don't. <laughs> he told me his name. And I said, nope, still no, not ringing a bell. And he goes, well, I was one of the three people that went out that day to plant the church. I just want to say thank you. And uh, he, he said, um, when you were standing up talking and suggesting we should leave, and go with this church plant, I thought to myself, is he crazy? <laughs> Can he look around the room and see that he doesn't have enough people for his church? What's he trying to do here? And um, But he said, by the end of your talk and by the end of the past, the church planner's speech, I thought we should go. One of the other singles that went that day uh, ended up becoming his wife. And so he's telling me a story how he had helped plant that church that, that went out from that, this, uh, that, from that church planner that was there that day. And then the church planner, some 10 or 15 years later, after that, went to another church plant. And he was an elder in that church and had helped the pastor plant two churches. And uh, so he was, just, he was just thanking me. So I would say it's never too early <laughs> to be thinking about your first church plant. Uh, but the, to answer your question more directly, uh, when I was the director of uh, church growth for the Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA, in the, in the late 80s, uh, we were listed as one of the fastest, maybe the fastest growing denomination in North America. We also had a number of large churches, about twice as many large churches, those over a thousand as average. And one of the things I did was study the characteristics of the churches. And I was really surprised uh, this because I had never done this kind of study before that, that, that to see that at the, the number 700, there was a precipitous drop off of effectiveness in the life of the church. If you measure it by professions of faith per year, um, uh, for example, um, percentage of congregation and leadership, 
um, um, giving per person. It just, it was like a cliff. It just fell off a cliff. And so to put numbers on that. So in a church plant in our denomination at that time, you had about um, for every 14 members, you had one profession of faith per year. In the established church, it was about 28 to one. And in those churches uh, over 700, it was about 50 to one. And so, and then also all the, 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 the leadership involvement in small groups, all of that, uh, all of that um, fell off. So I think what you see pretty regularly is it's healthier to plant a church that will immediately start planting churches and uh, cap itself at some size and decide we don't necessarily want to become 5,000 or 10,000 or 15,000. I, I don't have anything personally against that, against that, but you do see, um, church is becoming less effective in these kinds of categories. And so, for example, if you take up a church of 700, you might have 300 people that are doing the work and then 400 people watching. When that church grows to 1,000, you still have 300 people doing the work, but now 700 people kind of watching. And so the, the small church can be a much more effective uh, a way to do ministry. And so I'd encourage your listeners to, to plant early and to plant often. Very well said, Dr. Hawks. And um, let's say now for those who are listening today who um, have been wrestling with the prospect of planning a church for some time or maybe for the first time, they're hearing everything that you're saying and, and they're feeling uh, inclined to explore the opportunity to plant a church in the future. What are some practical steps or tools that they can use to help them prayerfully discern whether they are called to plant a church? And uh, maybe if, if you don't mind, uh, as a follow-up question to that, to what extent should formal seminary training be involved for those who are interested in planning a church, particularly maybe those who would be involved in the church leadership of a, of a plant? Yeah, sure. Uh, steps. I mean, one of the first and easiest step is to go to the pastors, elders, the leaders in your church and ask them the question, you think I might have the gifts of church planting? And uh, if they say yes, then ask them, where should I start? In our denominational context, in our church context, how do I get plugged in? Um, another way to go about that, again, in your local church contact, context is just take some initiative in, in ministry and um, <clears throat> help the church start thinking about planting locally or, or internationally um, to do some outreach, uh, just getting involved in any kind of ministry. Um, one of the most effective ways I've found over the years uh, to sort of uh, grow as a pastor is to start and lead a small group. So when we have, when we have church planters, we're trying to, or church planting prospects, we're trying to train them up and prepare them. We'll ask them to start and multiply, start a small group and grow it and multiply it. So many of the skills needed for pastoring and church planting are, are um, shown, proven, and developed in the, in the small group context. And then uh, also just a, a book to read. Um, I, I recommend um, uh, Church Planting by the Book by E. Albert Smith. It's a great uh, study. It studies the book of Acts and how to do church planting. So the Church Planting by the Book is literally by the book of Acts. It's a, it's a good, simple read, and it's one I often recommend. Um, in terms of tools, uh, as you get more interested further down, if you go on through your, your local church, uh, most denominations have something called an assessment center. Um, uh, our, our, the PCA pioneered those back in 1984. I've been involved with them since about 1986. I help run those for my denomination now, the Associate Reform Presbyterian Church, um, where it's a, it's a several, usually a multiple day process uh, where a church plan candidate is uh, run through a number of um, exercises, uh, watched by and interviewed by a number of experienced church planting couples usually. 
and uh, an assessment process is an excellent way to uh, to go to discern if you have those gifts. Um, uh, our denomination, many others, um, uh, Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, our home mission board, Outreach North America, on our website. If you search for Outreach North America, you find it has a self-test uh, entitled "Are You a Church Planter?" And uh, many denominations will have those on their on their website, so it can be very that, those can be helpful. Mm. In terms of seminary, um, <clears throat> I would say absolutely. <laughs> It's a great way to help prepare, prepare, prepare yourself for church planting, for ministry, uh, go to seminary and continue learning lifelong. Uh, I did my um, my Ph.D. thesis uh, studying how John Calvin uh, trained his church planters, his pastors at the Genevan Academy. And it was one of the great church planting movements in the, in the history of the world. As I mentioned, those twenty one hundred fifty churches that started all over France, many of those pastors and church planners came out of the Geneva Academy, sometimes 150 in a single year. And so rigorous, rigorous uh, theological training, original languages, all those things are really helpful. You don't have to have a seminary uh, degree to plant a church. Uh, much of the world is not possible or feasible, uh, but where we have the time and the ability to do so, it's certainly worth the investment. I'll never forget um, uh, working for uh, Dr. Graham years ago when he was asked a similar question, Billy Graham, uh, with all the need in the world, why should I waste my time is the way the, the question was uh, phrased, uh, going to seminary. Why don't I just go start doing evangelism today? And Mr. Graham's response was, I'll paraphrase, was something like this. He said, if I told you you had to uh, ch chop down a forest of trees, it wouldn't be any time. It would not be a waste of time sharpening the axe and sharpening your saw. <laughs> it's, it's a great use of your time. And so I think that was very well, uh, was very well put. Uh, Additionally, along the seminary line, many seminaries have um, courses. Uh, I teach at Birmingham Theological Seminary in, in Alabama. They have both a D-Min and MDiv track in church planting. I teach at our denominational seminary, Erskine Theological Seminary. And we also have courses in uh, church planting. Uh, one of the, we're offering both of those seminaries are offering courses uh, this starting in January. And uh, yeah, I think it's really worth spending the time on that. Hmm. Yeah, thank you for your uh, answer there. I especially appreciated your uh, comments about uh, visiting with your pastor, talking with your the elders of your given uh, congregation that you're under. Uh, certainly in our confessional Reformed Baptist contexts, uh, for Dewey and I, that would certainly be the first step is to be to talk with your elder and see if uh, you would be one who would uh, one day be sent by a congregation uh, for this work with the recognition of uh, uh, your congregation as an elder or church planter uh, with your pastor nominating you. So I really appreciated that uh, context. I know that this works out differently in different denominational structures, but uh, these are some really good thoughts that we're having. And uh, to wrap up our conversation, we want to give you the opportunity to uh, give any final thoughts for anything we've been talking about in our conversation, whether that's the importance of church planting or any of these particulars we've been discussing. We just want to give you the final word. So what are your final thoughts, brother? Sure. Yeah. And Matthew 9, 37, 38, Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Uh, the need always in church planting is just exactly what Jesus said for more church planters. It's true really of every every uh, ministry endeavor um, and very true of church planting. So I'd say if you're if you're thinking about church planting, if you're hearing this podcast and the term church planting uh, coming to your ears for the first time, understand that most people go through 
for lack of a better term, an evolution of thought <laughs> on the whole church planting idea. Usually when you hear it, it sounds like a strange idea and you think planting, what do you mean? Like move away a little piece of ground and plant a little baby church. What are you talking about? Then as you become a little more exposed to it, think about it biblically, you, you begin to understand what well, seems like something that someone should do. And then as you get a little more exposure, uh, you start thinking, well, maybe it's something that I might do. And then as you get a little more exposure, more talking, uh, as you talk to your elders and seminary training, other things like that, you get to the point where eventually you say it's something I, I have to do. When I left my last call where I served for 25 years and thought about taking an established church, I, I, I said, no, all I want to do, even at this stage of life, is just go plant another church and, and an, another church that will plant churches as I've been doing before. So if you're even thinking about being involved in church planning, I would encourage you to move forward in that idea. We, we need in this country and around the world thousands, tens of thousands of new church planters today, right now. Um, at this very moment, uh, we're trying our presbytery, trying to find a church planter for Tampa, Florida. So if you're listening to this, interested in Tampa, <coughs> Reformed and Presbyterian, give me a call. <laughs> We'd love to talk to you. Um, yeah, I just I would encourage anyone thinking about it to, to be involved. And then I would say what I've said before, that every Christian should find some way to help plant new churches, whether you're giving, praying or going. And the, the thing to do is to, to start right here. Pray for God to raise up laborers, particularly here, church planters for his harvest field. It's a great way to conclude a terrific conversation. It's been a delight getting to talk with you today, Dr. Hawks. We're grateful for all of your labors, for the advancement of God's kingdom, for your heart for Christ and the gospel. And we just want to say thank you so much for joining us today, brother. Every blessing in the Lord as you continue to labor in his service. Thank you, Dewey. Thank you, Austin. And it's been my pleasure to be with you, man. Lord bless you. Yes, sir. And to our listeners, we want to thank you again for your continued support of the Covenant Podcast. Until next time, we wish you grace and peace. God bless.